0: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
1: Hey, guys. I just wanted to let you know that this podcast is presented by mybookie.ag, and that if you use the promo code Matic. M-A-T-T-E-K, that you will get a 50% deposit bonus on your first deposit, and given that you are a listener to this podcast, I would assume you're relatively knowledgeable about sports, and I would trust you to try your edge on the online sports book. You can lay down some money and get in on the action at one of the safest online sports books in the world. It's the only one that I am currently using. You can wager on all sorts of different outcomes on mybookie.ag, soccer, football, any major league, esports. You can even create your own player props, which is useful for me because if you know anything about me, I do enjoy uh, a good player prop. So if you deposit using the promo code Matic M-A-T-T-E-K, you get a you get a 50% de- bonus when you deposit and I will add this for listeners of the Tatecast. If you deposit using the promo code MATIC and you send proof of it to me on Twitter, I will follow you on Twitter and you can have access to me via DMs whenever you want. That's the that's the Tatecast bonus that I'm adding in association with the mybookie.ag deposit bonus. Now let's get back to the show. everyone and welcome to the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You can find me on Twitter at Davis Matic. The guest in this episode is Rufus Peabody who you can find on Bet the Process and at MasseyPeabody.com. Rufus came on the show to talk a little bit about what it's like to be a pro better. You know a little bit of his methodology not giving too many secrets away as well as his experience with the sports betting national championship. I think that you guys will really like what he had to say about his experience there and I think you guys will be able to learn a little bit from him and uh, of course you will also be able to support the show if you would like. You can leave a rating and review on iTunes at any time, that's always very appreciated and Rufus and I did a little bonus 10 minute episode that will be able to be found on the Patreon feed for the show for just $5 a month. You get bonus episodes of the show, access to our sub-only Discord and all of the Showdown Slate podcasts that you can handle you can find that on www.patreon.com/takecast and after a quick ad we will get into the show Hey guys, I just wanted to take a moment out from the show to tell you about our proud sponsor, DailyRoto.com. You guys know that I have joined up forces with Daily Roto and Roto experts full time and wanted to communicate to you a little bit about their golf product. Of course, with your premium subscription to Daily Roto, you get their amazing NFL, NBA, and MLB tools. They have also partnered with Data Golf to provide the best customizable projections for PGA DFS as well as outright top five and top 20 betting using their tools you can calculate the ev for outright top five and top 20 bets as well as create the best and most customizable projections for pga daily fantasy in the industry you can save 10 percent on your subscription using the promo code rory right now and now back to the show all right, everyone. Would like to welcome in Rufus Peabody of Massey Peabody and Bet the Process onto the show. Rufus, how are you doing this morning?
0: I'm doing well. A little tired and and exhausted after a week of prop betting, but I'm here.
1: There we go. Uh, so normally with guests on the show, I just I love to get a sense of how people ended up here. And so my my question to you is. Did you like sports or math first? Which which came first in your, your line of work?
0: That's a good question. I, I think they both came at about the same time. I, I, I've always been into the numbers side of sports. And my mom used to tell the story about how I, uh, you know, I would they would buy the Washington Post on my way to school when I was in first grade, and I would read the box scores for baseball games. And I didn't even know how to read yet. So, um yeah, it was. I, I think they, they both occurred around the same time when I was when I was young.
1: Yeah, uh I mean that's uh that's i feel like that's kind of how a lot of people got into it was they just they just really enjoyed reading the paper which is something that's so foreign to our experience now but that was how I first started reading about and like becoming aware of sports I read the I read the sports section of our local paper every morning I think a, a pretty interesting question though with people who are very heavily involved in the math side of uh, fantasy sports and gambling is how you arrived at football kind of being your main sport, despite the you know the really inherent problems with football translating to math, it's it's the hardest game to assign individual credit. So, how did you arrive at, at football being your kind of main gambling sport?
0: Well, I think it, it's pretty simple actually, and that's just that football is the biggest market out there. Baseball, obviously, baseball was was actually the sport that I initially got into. Um, I, I did my senior thesis on psychological inefficiencies in the baseball betting market. But um, moving to Las Vegas after college, you know, football is the big get betting market, and the thing is, everybody's working with the same information, so it's not just hard for me; it's hard for everyone. And baseball is easier to quantify for everyone as well. So, so I think that um, I, I think that there are some real edges there if you can think about things creatively.
1: Do you feel that overall that football lines of, like, the four major sports are the least efficient if you have, like, a good mathematical or modeling background?
0: No, I actually think they are the most efficient just because it is the biggest market. But the advantage is you're able to bet more. So, um, smaller edges, but more volume.
1: Right, like the the biggest edges are probably on props, but the the limits for props are super low. Especially, uh, I assume an experience you've had plenty of times is books no longer taking your action.
0: Yeah, or just cutting your limits. That's that's the big thing, and making it just not worth your while. It, you know, you, you read about you know Darren Ravel or someone else tweeting that you know this person placed a four hundred thousand dollar bet on this, and and. Those people that are able to place bets like that are, are generally big casino players, and they're not—they're not winning bettors, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, and, and coming, at, I'm someone who, you know, my background is really a lot of, like, fantasy gaming, so I'm learning a lot of this stuff right now for the first time. But, like, what would the experience be of a casino limiting your action? Like, you literally go up to the window to place a bet, and they say, you know, the max you can do is 10K. I assume you and a lot of the pro sports bettors, like, have relationships with the sports books. Like, they they you guys know each other on a kind of personal level?
0: Yeah. Um, so the Westgate is is one where they will take my action that they they will give me house limits on things, but um, in average jail might be able to get a little bit more than I would. Uh, I'll be able to bet two thousand dollars on a prop bet there, just like everybody else. But you know, I wanted to bet um, I wanted to bet a halftime there during the I think it was it was one of the championship games, and. I pulled it up on the app. I was, I was in the Westgate Sportsbook book and, and they would only take $500 from me on that. And so that's, that's a sort of a common thing. And a few years ago I was betting props and, and I was waiting for these William Hill props to come out. William Hill props tend to be the most mispriced. Uh, you know, if you can bet the openers, there's some real gravy there, but I'm, I'm there. I'm, I happen to be at the counter right when that sheet um, comes out and it it's it's like christmas morning and i go up to debt, and they're like sorry um we can't take your action anymore and and for me it wasn't just the fact that they couldn't take my action more it was the timing of it the fact that i didn't have a, a a backup plan in place i didn't have anybody else that could go and you know bed for me or anything like that so it it can be quite frustrating at times but.
1: Yeah. And is there, so there's a yeah. sense, there's a sense of trying to be at the right casino at the right time when these like softer lines come out before. And I mean, a lot, I guess probably an experience you've had is the line moves after you place a bet on something.
0: Yes. And, and for props, lines need a ton. So, you, you know, you could see, I mean, I think a lot of these sheets are available online, for example, like the South point, And I saw someone on Twitter was quoting South point prices, um, saying, oh, this is a great prop bet. And, you know, they, they were looking at openers, and, and there was, I think, for example, no roughing the passer opened at plus 130 on the, on the no, and that should be priced closer to, like, a you know, two-to-one um, underdog than, yeah. uh, to have the roughing the passer penalty. So, you know, I bet that all the way up to, like, minus 150, minus 160, I believe. And so you do see some, some odds that are quite mispriced, but they do not last long at all
1: yeah so you are definitely one of the few people who's able to win at a you know a, a quite a good clip to call yourself a pro sports better and a lot of what you talk about is football the Massey Peabody site has a lot of really good um, you know football information you guys post a, a lot of the picks from your model on the website futures and everything but I know that you do some golf betting and that's of real interest to me because I'm like a lifelong golf betting fish though I have hit. Yeah, I've had a I've had a couple hits that have left me in in plus EV territory lifetime, but without divulging too much and giving away you know your edge and what goes into your math model, I would love to get your take on course history, guys. You know uh, Zach Johnson at the John Deere, uh, Bubba at the Travelers. Kind of kind of what is your overall opinion on course history for predicting future success? Well,
0: you know I I don't like talking too much about golf, but course history definitely matters. And I think, but I don't think it necessarily matters in the way everybody thinks it does. There are certain things that, you know, I think there are courses that fit golfer's eyes well. But like the Travelers isn't something that you would expect Bubba, it isn't a course you'd expect Bubba to be that much better, or you wouldn't expect him to be that, to play that well there relative to all these other courses, but he does. Right. Like just, But I, I think what matters more is how the course fits a particular player's style and so you know i can i can have a golfer that hasn't played a course ever but i think that he that the course will suit him really well because of you know x y and z about you know uh, his stats and 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 the, the way he attacks courses in general
1: Right. So are there kind of specific bet types that you think casual bettors would have more success on or more of an edge? Like, I think what a lot of people do is they choose to bet outrights, but obviously outrights over the long run, you're just going to put in a lot of negative EV money. Whereas in, you know, top 20s, head to heads or three balls, you're able to extract more value. Do you have any thoughts on those golf betting types?
0: Well, hopefully you're not putting, putting out negative EV bets in general. I mean, you can put out plenty of losing bets, but that doesn't right, necessarily right. mean they're negative EV. Uh, I have a particularly uh, – well, I've, I've been particularly good at, over the years at, at betting on guys to get second place. So uh, way too many Sergio Garcias and Jim Furyk bets. But I think – I mean, the, the bulk of it is, is matchup bets for me. So that's – just because that's where you can get the most money down.
1: Yeah, and I do are there uh, similar limits to betting on golf head-to-heads for you the same way that there would be for betting player props? Like if there's just very obviously a bad head-to-head line, do you find that those get moved or that you get limited on those as well?
0: Um, you know, I, I don't want to get too much into the mechanics of of. of- betting the golf as much
1: yeah yeah no that's cool um so have you thought much about playing pga dfs because there actually is more of a crossover between betting golf and playing dfs than there is kind of for any other dfs sport and betting
0: um you know i've 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 thought about it and actually i think it was five or six years ago I, i did it for a month or two but it's just very labor intensive i had to look and see uh, you know I, w- what I was most interested in, in doing was the sort of head-to-heads or, or these, I guess, quote cash games, yeah. rather than the the tournaments, just because it wouldn't require any additional work for me or not as much additional work to to change my project- projections to a projected DFS score, and then I can, you know, basically maximize fund lineups to maximize the uh, the DFS score, but if I'm going to play a $10,000 contest to get somebody, you know, I want to make, I want to have an idea of how optimal their, their lineup is going to be as well. And so you have to do a little bit of research on the guys you're up against. And I would, my, my, my general take is that, I mean, while I didn't think all these guys playing for $10,000 were creating optimal lineups, I don't know. The edges weren't that huge given, given the rake and the edges were much bigger on these sort of smaller uh smaller money um games but it just requires a lot of effort to put put those all in you know
1: right yeah
0: for, for for me dfs is just it's always been it's just too labor intensive
1: so do you just you um you just like don't really play much dfs at all i actually i actually don't know the answer to this question
0: yeah at this point i don't play dfs at all i haven't for for more than five years
1: yeah, oh, that's uh I mean that's pretty interesting. I think a lot of the a lot of the folks, like a lot of people I think believe that DFS is much easier than betting in terms of like the the time involved actually. Really? Yeah, just because there's um there's like no cost. Uh there's no time cost in getting money down. Like you can just you can enter in, you know, worth of games in 30 minutes and if you're just using you know one lineup like you're like we were talking about with PGA like one optimized lineup the best combination of like uh, cut percentage uh, optimized to like DraftKings uh, projections you can enter you can enter that lineup in and then you can enter in you know kind of infinite contests in like 30 minutes I think that's the, the attitude that a lot of people have about DFS is that the time cost is actually relatively low
0: for me, it's kind of more akin to to prop betting though because you do have to consider what other people are doing too right and well actually, you don't do that for prop betting but prop betting you have to keep up with the injuries and all that stuff and so I mean normally i can my golf projections are are pretty automated um i have I have a model, and what I do on a given week doesn't require much thought it's it's basically all the back end work has been done and so um I, you know, I I like that, that I can just do that. And then, I mean, just go through these matchups, find where the value is, run 300,000 simulations of the tournament, like, you know, and and just put the bets there. So, I mean, you're right. It doesn't seem like that much more work, I guess, um, for the DFS, but I don't know for me, it, it, I, I think that if, here's the thing, let's say that there are, let's say DraftKings, doesn't price these golfers very accurately. Yeah. If that's the case, you're going to find a bunch, you know, and let's say there's a, bu- there's a bunch of other people that are at least semi-sharp, you know, playing PGA DFS. They'll probably all like a lot of these same guys because they're the ones that are undervalued.
1: Yeah, I mean, that that, that definitely is true. There's there's a ton, like, at the higher stakes of anything, whether it be NFL, NBA, PGA, there's going to be a ton of overlap. There's just going to be a lot of guys who, like, you know, Hideki Matsuyama is underpriced relative to his outright odds. He's going to be 80% 80% owned amongst, like, high-stakes regulars or whatever. So that definitely does diminish the edge at the higher stakes. And at the, at the point in which you're playing, like, $5 head-to-heads on DraftKings, like, it's, it's probably, honestly, not worth even, like, the, the 30 minutes it would take to set up those games.
0: Exactly. And as the pricing becomes more accurate, you know, then your true edge to your, like, to your handicapping actually goes down. And so I feel like, in a way, I mean, and what's the rake there? Somebody told me it's, my, like, minus 125?
1: Uh, it it. I guess it would depend on the game type. But, yeah, like, the DraftKings Sportsbook, not very good rake. The DraftKings, uh like, DFS game rake, it would depend on the game. Actually, the rake at the higher games is a little bit less. Like, a, a $10,000 head-to-head game is raked a little bit less than, like, a uh, $20 head-to-head game is. Okay. So they do they do give a discount to people who are willing to put more action in but in general yeah the the biggest enemy of like the common DFS player is going to be the rake like a lot of a lot of people might be able to win at like a fifty percent clip or whatever but not enough to beat the rake
0: right just like sports betting
1: right exactly uh, so before we move on from golf uh, the PGA DFS community, I mean, there's a lot of guys that we've punted on over the years. Uh, Luke List is the current hot one right now that we just keep losing uh, outright bets on. Are there any guys that are just total bogeys for you that have cost you more money than they've made you?
0: Oh, uh, plenty, plenty. Um, at least on outrights, Jim Furyk and Sergio, Sergio Garcia come to mind the most. But Luke List is definitely one as well. Yeah, i I've, I've you know, the, what I hate is when you bet somebody that relatively unknown for a while and under the radar and they come really close a bunch of times and then the public realizes who they are and they suddenly there's suddenly no value in betting them and then they finally win and so i guess the best example for me is uh kyle stanley at tory pines in 2012 i believe it was which he um i I don't know if you remember this farmer's insurance open he had a six-stroke lead heading into the final round and he had a I guess he had a – it was either two- or three-stroke lead going into the final hole. All he needed was – yeah, no, no, three-stroke lead. All he needed was a double bogey to win. And Brant Snedeker, who was in second place, had already finished. And so, you know, 18 at Tory Pines is the easiest hole on the course generally. Right. Um, Kyle Stanley, you know, he laid up, sitting 100 yards out in the fairway and two. Um, he could have used his putter and, and gotten a double bogey from there. But – you know, he hits this beautiful shot that he overspins it, goes back into the pond, like, then hits it over the green, chips to three feet, misses his three-footer, and suddenly it's a, double, it's a triple bogey, and um, and then he loses on the second playoff hole after Snedeker hits one off the grandstand and bounces back onto the green. And so uh, it, it was pretty bad. Like, uh, we, uh, my partners and I stood to win 150000 on on the on Kyle Stanley outright fast forward to the next week. And we have, um, and, in in basically, well, have you you know, Spencer Levine, the little short chain smoker.
1: Yep. I do. I'm, I'm yeah, well aware. Yeah. He, uh, he had a, I don't know
0: how this happened back to back weeks, but he had a six stroke lead going into the final round of the Phoenix open and ended up blowing that and Kyle Stanley got the win like it was this great story of redemption according to the media and i was like i got screwed twice
1: yeah and so. you were and you were just tilting saying if he would have just made the three footer then this would all be different yeah yeah And I mean, that's uh golf. I think golf provides like the best bad beat stories out of any sports because there are so many like that where the guy just has to make a a 10 footer or whatever. There's actually a big one in the DFS community with the, uh, the Dustin Johnson, Jordan Spieth, us open. One of the, one of like the guys in our community, uh, his name is, his name is Dave Kaplan. He was set to win, uh, one of the first DraftKings millionaire makers for PGA. If Dustin made, I think it was like the eight footer to, uh, to send yep. it and uh and you know of course he he three putted that and so uh you know one of our guys that we all know lost the first DraftKings millionaire maker on uh dustin not being able to putt on 18.
0: that, that was a costly missed putt for me as well
1: yeah yeah that was uh i mean the, the dustin is dustin is a guy that uh it's definitely a a favorite of the metrics community but uh Changing, changing focus a little bit here. So I look at the Massey Peabody picks every week before I place any bets, before I make picks for any sort of contest or. To- or uh, you know, anything like that. And I, I do have a small question about methodology, and if you don't want to get too far into it, totally cool with me. But I've always wondered how you guys deal with coaching inside of your methodology, because for me as an outsider, that kind of feels like the hardest thing to quantify into an actual number and to predict the future success or failures of like coaching decisions.
0: No, you're right. It is difficult. It's, it's, it's something I don't think we have a perfect solution to. I think in general, a lot of the coaching stuff, um, at least game planning and all that stuff sort of um, is reflected in the statistics, you know, Uh, but I, I, if you're talking about the in-game coaching, the, you know, fourth down decision-making, that kind of thing, the thing, the areas where the Eagles excel, for example, and and where Sean McVay has not been that great. Dirty, dirty little Um,
1: secret, dirty little secret, Sean McVay kind of, uh, kind of a wimp with his fourth down play calling.
0: Totally. Yeah. That's something that, um, it, 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 I guess it, we don't directly account for it, but, but in terms of, um, but, but it is, I guess, indirectly accounted for in terms of a team's scoring efficiency. So it's an area where the Patriots have been good for many years and other teams haven't. So, um, I guess it's like asking, how do I account for, for teams, you know, um, being more penalty prone and things like that. It's, yeah. it's, it's sort of indirectly accounted for in this sort of last the scoring efficiency, which is kind of a catch-all that gets a lot of other components um, that are not necessarily reflected in, in individual play yardage and success.
1: Yeah. So this is uh, this is not on our agenda, but just while we were talking, I'm reminded of this. Something that uh, came up a lot this year with your guys's lines is you guys had picks on a lot of the massive dogs, like when the Cardinals were 15 point, like home or road dogs. When the Buffalo Bills would be 13 point dogs, and um, I guess the the question would be, I feel like those bets ran kind of bad this year. And do you think that there is anything to be adjusted in the future with how pass-heavy teams are going, and maybe maybe the teams that are fourteen-point dogs, it's maybe more accurate for them to be that dogged, given how much teams are scoring now.
0: That's a good point. I mean, I do given that you know, if a team is a certain like let's say a team that's ten points better based on you know a forty points scored in a game, they're going to be probably uh, more points better if. if you're expected to have 60 points in that game. Um, is that the point you're making?
1: Right, yeah, That that's the exact point yeah. I'm making.
0: Yeah, so that's something that I, I generally do adjust for. Um, so with the higher total that, you know, at least for my own betting, the Matthew Peabody ratings, we just... What I give out there is literally just basically the difference in ratings. Um, right. But, um, yeah, so hold on one second no worries for me that's that's uh you know I, that's a very good point you bring up but it, it, it is something that that i use a lot more in college football because that's where it really makes a difference because you see much bigger uh differences in sort of in terms of game totals yeah like if you have like an oklahoma game you know versus like texas tech that's gonna have 75 points versus like you know the army navy game where you know, the total was like 37 you know if one team uh, the differences are going to be magnified
1: yeah and that like just in in college there's a they're going to be teams that are favored by like 39 points or whatever and like that's hard to tell if it's an accurate line i i tend to think that like the massive dog teams are in general are like relatively good bets but definitely something that burned me a couple times this year so we have to uh, turn now to the Sports Betting National Championship. Uh, if you happen to be listening to this and you don't know, Rufus was in first place of the DraftKings Sports Betting National Championship after the Patriots covered versus the Chargers, but uh, his bet was not graded in time to allow him to wager on the final game. So you finished in third place for uh, $330,000, but you were denied the opportunity to place a wager, which could have put you in first place for a million dollars so obviously massive controversy about this because uh other bet types were graded earlier and certain people were able to go up to the window and get theirs manually graded so rewinding a little bit what was the experience like and what was your strategy like before the controversy because to me the way that the whole thing was set up is it really seemed like an exercise in game theory kind of more than just the ability to accurately predict sports results
0: i completely agree with that to me it wasn't it, it wasn't a sports handicapping contest in any way shape or form it was you know much like i guess winning the world series of poker isn't about being the best poker player Probably it's about getting lucky and 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 having a good strategy and mostly getting lucky and and for me, it was about mostly getting lucky. Although I do think there were some edges there, given how conservative a lot of the participants were. So I I, I went into the strategy that I, I tried to reverse engineer what where I would need to get to, and and I thought overall going into it that the winner would be somewhere. North of a hundred thousand, but probably south of one hundred and fifty thousand, somewhere in that range. Yeah, um, just based on based on how many people there were and how many um, you know people taking shots. So you know, if you if you think about it, um, if you know if everybody was playing kind of optimally and taking um, taking a bunch of shots with parlays and, and big money lines, you're going to have some people that inevitably get up, you know, reach that number. And so my thought was if I could get up to that sort of 30 to $50,000 range going into the last day, going into Sunday, I would have a chance because I could to double up twice and, and get to that number. And so I tried to, on the, I didn't really do much the first day. The second day I, I tried to find some parlays that would get me into that range that, um, that weren't, I mean, cause there weren't really any money lines, um, that were really big enough with edges to, to do that. So I, I found some, some golf bets and parlayed that was in football stuff and some hockey stuff and, and had a bunch of, that had like five or six different parlays that, that would hit if they hit would put me in that range. And one of them ended up hitting, which is nice. Um, and actually two, um, and almost a third that, you know, I think there was one that came down to, it was a six leg parlay, by the way, I got very lucky that these parlays hit. These were, you know, I I had edges on them, but the edges are not huge, right? And you know, so um, for one of them, I think all I needed was uh, Ches Reeve to win his. It was a sort of a six uh, six way six group or six person group bet. You know, if, if he if he had won that, like all the every every other leg had hit. And so that would have actually put my bankroll over a hundred thousand right then. But he uh, and he was five under at the turn, but he bogeyed three straight on the back nine and ended up. Uh, I think finished with two birdies, but I think was a few back of I forget who it was someone. Um, kind of went crazy in that up and shot seven under. So.
1: Yeah, and I actually, I actually undershot what the final winning score would be. It was hard for me to imagine anyone really running it up that high. Like I thought, I thought the winner would kind of be. I thought it would be more in like the fifty thousand dollar range. But a lot of people, uh, a lot of people, you know, obviously did a lot of parlays, and some people really hit the college basketball games on that Friday really hard, which I think like shifted the projection of what the winning score would be because so many people hit those games hard. Did you do any of the college basketball lines
0: i didn't not a single one i mean i i thought of it this way like let's say you have all these people betting 20 to one shot you know like a a bunch of people like and with their entire bankroll you know somebody's gonna hit well actually you would think like 10 people would hit right
1: i mean yeah yeah if if i don't even know there were what like 250 people participating something like that so if so if 200 people all bet 20 to ones, you know, if the the math would just work out that, you know, 20 of those people, 30 of those people would hit and then the leaderboard would like shift pretty dramatically. So like that was the first thing after that first day. I was like, oh, no, it's going to take way more to to win this. So we're a, we're a couple weeks out from this now. We're actually about uh, a month later. So with that longer lens, what do you actually think DraftKings' critical error was? Was it just a lack of foresight in general or just like, you know, the ability to not understand that one of the games might run long or might go to overtime? Was it just like poor planning in that way?
0: Well, I think the contest, well, I think it was a great idea. I think the organization was was kind of bad in general it was so difficult to actually sign up. It took me forty eight hours from the time I sent an email to try to sign up to the time I actually got signed up. and I had to I had to keep emailing and they were not very responsive. Um, and I was trying to give them money. You know,
1: so, they and they were they were uh, trying they were really trying to get money too. like everyone who had played DraftKings, like they were sending out crazy emails. they were offering discounts. They were really trying to fill this thing up. So that's surprising to me.
0: Yeah. I just think it wasn't very well organized. They kind of, they were, it seemed like we're figuring it out as they went along and you know, you're right. there what they they, I think they realized that it could be an issue beforehand. We got an email or sorry, the, um, the Patriots game running long could be an issue because we did get an email about it, but they also did say that there would be this cash out option available. And so um, I figured, you know, you the biggest Patriots minus three and a half is going to be your, you know, that that's a pretty big market. That's one where I would, I would expect that cash out option to actually be available. And I'd expect it to be the first thing graded after the game. Um, What I didn't expect was that people would get uh, prop bets graded in the second quarter before the game was official. um, While my, it would be more than five minutes after the game ended that my Patriots bet was graded. And then, and I think that, um, to me, I don't think that was a reasonable outcome at all. I don't even given that the game went long. I mean, I've never, you know, they have insisted to me that their technology worked the way it was supposed to work. And, and this is Camby in Sweden that, that does this for them. But the, the regular processes were followed. But to me, that, it just seems ludicrous that it would take that long for the biggest market to settle. I've, I've never really had that experience anywhere else.
1: Well, it is. I mean, it's just it is bizarre that like the some of the props were graded out. Like, I think the the Tyrell Williams receiving prop and uh, the uh, what the Sony Michelle rushing prop, like those being graded out. Those that just like that has to just be an error on their part. Like that, I don't that that can't happen, right?
0: I agree because at that point the game isn't official yet. I mean, if if you know something happens to delay or postpone the game um those bets wouldn't be official but also it, it isn't like the first touchdown bet in in, in which you know where you, know, you can't get a negative touchdown afterwards even i mean what could happen is the game could if something could happen and the game isn't official but um but these are over under props and you can lose yards receiving and rushing Sony Michelle could Bel- Belichick could decide at the end of the game to have them run backwards and run out the clock and take an s- intentional safety. You know, so right, yeah. I mean, it's it's unlikely, but but it is something that isn't out of completely out of the realm of possibility.
1: Yeah. So overlay was definitely a motivating factor for a lot of people entering. Uh, But overlay aside, do you think that there is like a future and edge in peer-to-peer betting formats? Because I I actually kind of think maybe that's a, a decent future for sports betting and the industry in the United States where the more creative the format gets to get people entering their money into the betting ecosystem, like the better. But a lot of these people are going to, you know, just most of these people are going to lose. They're not going to be able to beat the rake. Do you have any thoughts on what types of formats would be pretty compelling as betting markets in the United States evolve?
0: So this this doesn't relate to the contest in general, but I think an exchange really is the future, or at least I hope it is, because I, I think the big issue with someplace like DraftKings and, and a bunch of other books is that they follow this European model, which basically uh, is that they want to take a lot of action from recreational betters, and they want, but equally important is identifying sharp betters and cutting them off. And so um, you have this completely underserved population of people, these sharp betters, and some of which, you know, some of whom are, are probably just break even betters. We're not even talking about people that are doing this for a living necessarily, but people that are betting lots of underdogs or betting a bunch of props or. or basically profiling is at least semi sharp. And so, you know, betting exchange makes the most sense for, for these, for, for people like me, I guess, because, you know, you can, well, the operator isn't actually taking a position on the game there. It's, it's like a poker table. They're just taking a rake. And so I, I think that's something that would be, um, I mean, I think that's something a lot of people are interested in. Unfortunately that, that model hasn't really been successful, you know matchbook tried it um bed is having some financial difficulties with that. I think their their actual sports book is doing a lot better than than their exchange but I'm really I mean because the big problem with that is that your average recreational better isn't gonna doesn't understand the the way an exchange works as much it's 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 a little more difficult and you know as an American too I mean you're you're seeing things in like decimal odds and it's, it's a little bit different but and and I think as it is like, right now, I mean, the exchanges are, are probably about half sharps and half bookmakers trying to lay off action. So, yeah.
1: um,
0: but I don't know. I, I really, I, I'm bullish on the idea. I think we need this. We we need us. Uh, it's it's not going to happen until there's a, a better federal framework for sports betting in place where you can, um, where you can transmit information across state lines. And and with the reinterpretation of the wire act recently, it seems like we're going in the wrong direction there, but, but I'm still hopeful. Um, and yeah, I'm hopeful.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty hopeful too, but I do think that some company, some, you know, some venture capitalist, some whatever, there, there has to be a solution to not bleeding the, the stone completely dry. And, and I don't know what that solution is, and I don't know what the eventual game type will be, but there does have to be a way to make it, you know, kind of more frictionless. Frictionlessly peer to peer as opposed to people just betting straight against the book. Like I, I think that's kind of the bottom line for like at least from my perspective.
0: Yeah, to me I think that's literally exactly what an exchange is. It, it like makes so much sense. Like why why shouldn't it work?
1: Yeah, just because people aren't smart enough to figure it out and the legality is questionable right now. But I do agree with you, that's like a pretty good uh future forecast of what things might be
0: right and then then the other problem is you you can't really parlay things on an exchange
1: people right. i people love their parlays, <laughs> yeah, yeah no it's doubt true. um so the Super Bowl, do you hold any futures? will you and uh Massey have a play?
0: So I do hold futures on the Patriots that I placed earlier in the season, surprisingly um I think hopefully might hopefully year. after they oh.
1: lost to Detroit, that was maybe the most tilting game of my entire life. <laughs>
0: No, it was it was the middle of the season, middle to late. Um, yeah, prices just. I, I think there was this perception that the Patriots weren't that good, and you know I I thought they were a little better. So, uh, will Matthew Keepley have a play? Um, I think we probably will have a play on the Rams. Uh, we we definitely have value in the Rams at this point. I've been waiting till to see some Sabres pop up, and and I pounced a little bit when threes have popped up because I do have these Patriots futures. I'm, I'm willing to, to, to take a big position on the Rams plus three and, you know, hopefully the Patriots win by two and, and I'm very happy in that case.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They, they win by two. You're a very happy dude. Yeah. So we got to talk a little bit about prop bets before I let you go. Uh, kind of what is your overall strategy? What kind of props do you gravitate towards? Like, I assume you're not doing very many of like the super silly ones, like, you know, what color Gatorade, but it's more yardage reception carry sort of props.
0: Right. And you, and you can't even bet the, the what color Gatorade in, in the state of Nevada. You, you can only bet things that are, you, you can, I guess, get from the NFL's official data on the game. So from the game book. So I, am I, 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 basically try to project out everything and i so i got my start i guess doing props many many years ago that was i I would be vetting props every week at this point i'm really only doing it once a year so it's a lot of work and and probably and i don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze at this point just because i have to kind of revisit um, revisit my methodology every year and, and it feels like um it's always hard when when you don't notate your code well enough. I'll say that it, it, <laughs> it, it, it motivates me to be a little bit better with that. But um, yeah, so I, I'm betting um, both player props and game props. Things like will there be a two point conversion? You know, um, James White's longest reception. You know what? You know his first reception length. Like, all sorts of things like that. Will C.J. Anderson score a touchdown? No, quite a lot of that. C.J. Anderson scores a touchdown, I lose fifty grand. I think.
1: Wow, we got but, we, we are it, shorting it, C.J. Anderson officially. Well,
0: it's more about the prices I got because that because that was one that's one where you know, you're not going to use some sort of statistical model to be able to perfectly predict the usage of, of C.J. Anderson versus Todd Gurley. I think we everybody is kind of mystified at what's going on and, and how hurt Definitely. he is Todd Gurley. Yeah.
1: Um
0: and, and why is he saying these things that are you know, that he you know, he he played sorry and didn't deserve to actually be out there and things like that. Yeah. So uh I, I didn't want to actually have a that big a position on C.G. Anderson just given the fact that um it's less math and more an opinion, I guess. Um although it is it is math, but but it's it, it I had I made a judgment call on what percentage of carries he's gonna get and, and what you know, what percentage of carries inside the five yard line and, and you know, things like that. But I I just thought the price seemed kind of kind of off. But it it is one with, where there's a lot of uncertainty. So that, that that's something I tend to I tend to wanna to avoid big positions where where it's based on an opinion rather than based on something more mathematical
1: right so finally last thing uh you've been pretty critical at times of the sports betting media landscape with i think good cause there are obviously a lot of fraudsters out there and you've actually even launched your own podcast bet the process to try and engage with and educate sports betters. what are your goals for that podcast moving forward and how do you think that overall the the media climate can better improve betting content
0: so, first off, the goals for the Bet the Process podcast, I guess, um, is to sort of educate betters and to into and into and sort of be able to take deep dives into some things that um, that I, that neither Jeff nor I were able to do when we were at ESPN. I think the big thing there was we we were, we had to have quick sound bites and sort of um, tell people what to think rather than how to think, and I think that's kind of what we try to do sort of say okay this is how like get get people into this sort of framework of thinking um and it, what our process is i guess but i also uh, but in terms of the media landscape overall i think it's really difficult and I, I don't really have the answer there because the question is what is betting content and and people want picks they want to buy picks and nasty peabody um it's picks that drive people going to that site which that wasn't our intention and it's not my favorite thing to, to do because it's, I don't know. Um, but I think that you're, you're going to see some issues with, with things like, you know, the action network. And I mean, where, I, I don't know what they're trying to be at this point, And I, I, I think they're trying to figure it out too. I mean, they're, they're, they have certain things that are tools for betters. Like they, you know, sports insights does, a bunch of trends and things like that that are actually trying to, to help betters. Um, we're sometimes critical of those, but, but but that's sort of one area of a um, focus for them. While another is seems to be more just entertainment, like guys like Paul LaDuca who are down like a thousand units on betting and, and, and nobody would say they're sharp betters, but, but they're, they're talking about their gambling stories and, and, and creating just sort of this entertainment so um I, I think that's and obviously they keep hiring people like that so so it there is an appetite for that but uh, it, it's definitely hard to create content that helps the average better without um it's hard to create content that helps the average better and is sustainable because if you do help i mean it's, it's just like selling pics. you know if, you, if you're good at it you're going to end up um, moving the market and, and people aren't going to end up getting that value they once did because you're going to cannibalize your own user base. You know, people will move the market and most people are left not getting um, you know, getting the sloppy seconds, not being able to, to get in at a, at a good price. And so um, I think it's, to, you know, I think it's a huge issue and, and I don't really know where it's going to go. What do you think?
1: I, you know, I, I do think that actually a lot of what is going to happen over the next, I would guess, probably five years is I think, unfortunately, a lot of it is going to kind of be that entertainment stuff and and selling picks there are going to be people who market themselves as winners when they are not winners or they're betting non-sharp lines or things like that because there is no real verifiable way to prove if someone is a winner or loser and this is something that's existed in sports betting for a long time where people post picks against lines that you can't even really get and i guess there is sort of this interesting thing where in dfs you can pretty much figure out if someone is a winner or a loser if someone is a winner, they're going to be playing in higher stakes games. You're going to see them you know at the top of tournaments. and there there really is not as easy of a way to verify that. In sports betting, and I, I kind of think that we're in a, a Wild West period of sports betting content right now. And unfortunately, the the sort of bet the process model or the people who are trying to educate, it's just not as flashy to the average consumer as the, uh, look, we're up 10 units this week sort of thing is. And, and yeah, I, I kind of think right now the overall environment is sort of bad and negative for like, you know, average Joe who wants to just bet on some games. I
0: agree. You make good points.
1: Yeah. Um, All right. So tell people where to find you, where to listen to the podcast, and uh, about the Massey Peabody site.
0: Okay. So you can, so the Massey Peabody site, first off, is is something that I started with my former senior thesis advisor, Cade Massey, who at the time was a professor at Yale, and now he's a professor at, at Wharton. And so we post our, basically, Massey Peabody, we do college football and NFL ratings, and we post picks based off of those ratings um, for TFL. Uh, I, we used to do that for college football. We still do for bowl games, but it, it ended up you know, hurting value in future weeks and I have to protect my livelihood. So don't do that anymore. But so massy dash Peabody.com is that site. You can find the death of process podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. You know, iTunes is where I get mine. Um, so, and, and then you can follow me on Twitter at, at Rufus Peabody.
1: There we go. All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks for joining. Thanks a lot, Davis.